All right. This will be a short message. If you would, turn to Revelation 1. We want to end our time. We haven't done this before, I don't think, at a Saturday seminar. But we want to sit under God's word. We want to hear from God. Um, specifically, Revelation 1, verse 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you've seen in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What does a Christian need when they find themselves in severe distress? Let's say, what does a man need who finds himself exiled on an island, left there to die, condemned as a criminal because he represented Christ without fear? What does a church need? Let's say a church that is beginning to compromise under pressure, or a comfortable church that has lost its first love? What do they need? How about a church that's about to be attacked, arrested, and imprisoned? What do they need? Or for that matter, a healthy church. What do they need? Well, according to Revelation, they need a vision of Christ, a jaw-dropping gripping, enthralling vision of the risen and reigning Christ. That's what we have here. That's what John needed. That's what these seven churches needed. And that's what you and I need. But let's back up. Let's notice the setting, verses 9 through 11. That's the first of 
five headings I have for you. The setting, verse 9, your brother and partner, John says, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's how he describes his relationship to these churches. We're brothers and sisters. We're partners in tribulation, in the kingdom, and in the patient endurance. That all come when we're connected to Jesus. He was on the island called Patmos, he says, on account of the word and the testimony of Jesus. We've already alluded to this many times today. John was exiled, which was one form of punishment for criminals in these days, like Britain used to do, putting criminals on Australia. Apologies to Peter Arndt, uh, an Australian in our church. But that's what, the, that's what they did. They put criminals on that giant island called, called Australia. And in these days, the Roman government put criminals on Patmos and left them there to die. And one Sunday, that's what it means by the Lord's Day. One Sunday, John says he was in the spirit. He was praying. He was moved. He was stirred. And then he heard a voice. A voice like a trumpet, he says. And the voice said, write what you're about to see. And then get it to these seven churches in Asia Minor. And then what John saw, well, it's what he needed. It's what these seven churches needed. It's what every church needs. It's what you and I need. Secondly, here's the encounter. The encounter, verses 12 to 16. He turned to see the voice that was speaking to him, and he saw seven golden lampstands, and the, the one with the voice, he was in the midst of the lampstands. Now, verse 20 tells us that the lampstands are these churches. So Jesus is in the midst of them. He's with them. It's true what he said in Matthew 28, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. These churches may have wondered at times whether the severe persecution that they faced meant Jesus forgot about them, that Jesus didn't see, that Jesus was weak, that he was unable to stop it. And maybe his promises weren't true. Maybe even their sin, their waywardness, their overly inventive new theologies. Maybe they wondered whether Jesus saw them and cared for them or whether Jesus could fix them. But he is in the midst of the lampstands. He is in the midst of Desert Springs Church. He's the son of man. John says he's one like a son of man. This comes from Daniel 7, where there Daniel... He saw, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite designation of himself. 
partly because it could be misunderstood, and he was for a time trying to cloak his divinity and his identity and reveal it only at the proper time, his timing. But, but another reason Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man is because of Daniel 7. He's this Son of Man, and John knows it. He sees him in a long robe, in a golden sash. And the length of a king's robe in these days was a, a symbol of honor. You remember from the Isaiah 6 vision that the robe filled the temple. He wears a long robe. He has a golden sash. He's kingly in appearance. Verse 14, his hair is white like wool. Probably an indication of old age. I'm getting a little bit of gray hair more all the time. Some of you are ahead of me. You remember that Proverbs says the white hair, that's a crown of glory, right? Well, this is that to the nth degree. This is showing Jesus' perfect, complete wisdom and his eternality. His eyes were like fire. There's a, a, a fierceness to his gaze. His gaze is penetrating and powerful. He, he sees all. He's all-knowing. His feet were burnished like bronze. They were glowing. Probably an indication of his purity. He's been purified. He doesn't have dirty feet. But he... he it also shows that he's, he's planted. He's steady. These are not feet of clay, but bronze. His voice is like the sound of many waters. I've not been to Niagara Falls. Perhaps you have. But I hear it's not just the sound of the water. It's the feeling of the water that you experience when you're there. And I suspect John felt the voice. And out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword, verse 16 says. We'll see that later on, Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back again on a white horse, judging his enemies and a sharp two-edged sword, goes out from his mouth and does his judging work. His word is that powerful. His word slays his enemies. His word cuts. Psalm 46 says the, the voice of the Lord melts the earth. Now, now we need to pause here, I think, to remember that this is a vision. It is an apocalyptic vision. Let's not forget what we've learned this morning. So this isn't literal. This isn't what the literal Christ looks like. This is not what the men on the road to Emmaus saw, right? This is, this is not what doubting Thomas saw, not Revelation 1. Jesus didn't have a sword protruding out of his mouth when he had that last meal of fish with his disciples. No, this is a vision, and it's not supposed to be drawn despite the hundreds of ridiculous drawings you can find of this on the interwebs. 
No, each thing is its own thing. Each thing, the robe, the hair, the eyes, the feet, the sword mouth, it's meant to communicate its own message. That's just how apocalyptic literature works. So in his right hand are seven stars. Again, verse 20 tells us that the stars are the angels of the seven churches. So you've got layers of protection and power going on here. You've got angels in, on the churches and all that in the hand of Jesus. He holds them. He's sovereign over them. He controls them. He, he cares for them. He protects them. He holds in his hands the angels that care for and guard the churches. And his face is shining like the sun in its full strength. When the sun is at its brightest, you don't look at it hard or long. You just get a glimpse of it, and that's all you can do. It should make clear to us, if it hasn't been already, that this is a divine vision. This one that we're seeing is not an angel. They're glorious. Don't get me wrong. You read Revelation, and John will sometimes get confused and fall down before an angel. But the angel will say, hey, don't do that. I'm like one of you. I'm just a created being. But not here. God's glory is shown to John in this clearly divine way. Thirdly, the response. What is John's response? It's brief. Verse 17, just the first half of it. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is reminiscent of Daniel's reaction after he heard from the Lord and had a great vision. In Daniel 10, he says, So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and strength left me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. I, I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. In a Daniel-like way, John sees Jesus and fell at his feet as though dead. Like Job, who heard from the Lord and put his hand over his mouth and, say, and said, I've heard about you, but now my eyes see you. Or like Isaiah, who says that he was undone and he sees his own sin when he saw the glory of the Lord, or, or like Habakkuk that said, my, my insides were, were torn out when he encountered the Lord. I need to ask myself, when's the last time that I've just felt undone by the Lord's glory? by seeing more of Christ, by being further impressed by who he is and what he's done. When's the last time that I thought that the only appropriate position for this body right now is flat on my face? 
too long ago. That's my answer. Fourth, there's the reassurance. You got to love this. But he laid his right hand on me. He touched him. By the way, the same thing happens in Daniel 10 after Daniel's reaction. There's a man, which almost certainly is the pre-incarnate Christ, and he lays his hand on Daniel and comforts him. Here, he lays his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. Now, you might wonder, fear not. Doesn't the Bible sometimes say we should fear God? Doesn't Proverbs say that's the foundation of wisdom? I mean, is this a wrong response that John fell on his face as he did? Well, in English, you've got to know, we have all kinds of different words for fear, different kinds of fear. You can talk about being timid or scared or nervous or dreading something or being terrified. And in Greek, there's really only one primary word for fear. And sometimes it's referring to bad fear, and sometimes it's referring to good fear. Sometimes it's a command, fear God. And sometimes it's a command, don't be afraid. Only context tells us which one is which, whether it's good or bad. So apparently John's response here was more like dread than that proverbial fear of God. It was more terror than awe. So maybe we could interpret what Jesus said as, John, don't dread me. Yes, fear me. Notice he never tells John to get up. John's prostrate position is indeed the proper one here but 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 John you don't have to be afraid fear me yes don't but you don't have to be afraid of me i died and i'm alive forever and in my death and resurrection i snatched the keys of death in hades and i hold them in my hand you don't have to be afraid. What great reassurance. Not only is Jesus in the midst of his people, not only is Jesus jaw-droppingly, shockingly glorious and spectacular, but he's merciful, he's kind, he's caring, he touches he speaks. He reassures. Fifth, and lastly, I want to talk about the writing. The writing. John wrote it down. And we have it. He wrote down what he saw. We need a vision of the risen, reigning Christ. And we have it in holy writ not just an experience. Our passage is about a vision, yes, but did you notice it's bracketed by Jesus' command for John to write what he sees. Verse 11, write. 
Verse 19, write. Jesus wanted John to write it down for others so they could see the vision for themselves through his words. And you might be tempted to be jealous of John. You might be thinking, yeah, I could get through this, what I'm going through right now, if I could have a vision like that. I'd love to see Jesus like this. I'd love to have a Daniel-like dream. Bring it. He's given you the Bible. He wrote it down. I don't know if you'll ever get a miraculous dream. I don't know if you'll ever see a vision of Jesus. I suspect not. But I do know he has given you his word. John obediently wrote down what he saw to the best of his ability, making sure he put lots of likes in there. It's like this. It's like that. It's like that. Oh, it's glorious. He wrote it down to the best of his ability. And even more, he wrote it down with the Holy Spirit's perfect guidance. And what he wrote down has survived almost 2,000 years now. It's been carried far from Patmos. I don't know how it got off Patmos. I know it did. Because I have it. It's been translated into countless languages. I don't even know how many English translations there are of the Bible. But it's a privilege that we have so many. I asked at the beginning, what do you need? What does a Christian need? What does a church need? They need the Bible. They need to see Christ in the Bible. So another question. What do you see? What do you see? Back to that magic eye poster that we talked about maybe an hour and a half ago. Remember the first time you encountered one of those? And a friend tried to get you to see. and They told you, don't merely look at the surface. Look deeper. Stare harder. And you might see something emerge. You might see something with depth. You, you might see the real purpose. Isn't the Christian life a little bit like those magic eye posters where... It's all too easy and too common to go about life looking on the surface of things and acting like life is just emails and groceries and taxes and errands and tasks and an occasional hobby. Well, here's what you need to see today. More than anything else, Jesus is on his throne right now. Jesus is near to you right now. Jesus died for sins, was raised on the third day, and he holds hell and death in his hand. His plan is sure. He will come again. And if our eyes are fixed merely on the surface of things, or even in the, in the depths of our pain or frustrations, we'll wonder, 
Is Jesus aloof? Is Jesus weak? Is Jesus frail? Does Jesus see? Does Jesus care? Is he sleeping? Has he forgotten? Will he let injustice just keep going on forever and ever? And to those questions, we hear this. The one speaking to me, I saw him. He was in the midst of seven golden lampstands. He's the son of man. He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head are white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. You might want to get on your face sometime today. But don't dread him. He's merciful. He cares. He's near. He's the son of man. Well, let's pray, and uh, I'll have Asher come up for some closing words. Lord, we love you, and we want to love you more. We hope in you, and we believe in you, and we trust you, but we want to hope in and trust you more. Lord, we want to taste and see that you are good. We want, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, to keep beholding you and to be changed from one degree of glory to another as we behold you. Show us your glory. We pray with Moses. Lord, help us to see. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us so clearly, so beautifully, so powerfully, so majestically. Forgive us for neglecting your word and quicken us in it. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.